Lonnie, your kids are adorable. I need them to talk about me. It was amazing. No, that was that was good. I had a whole introduction and that threw me all off. I, I, I do make more than enchiladas at home, so I do want to make set the record clear. For but happy Father's Day, happy Father's Day for those for those that are fathers. I, no, this is really um, a joyful and joyous occasion. You know. Um, when Rachel was up here when she was at the very beginning talking about happy happy Father's Day and we representing our fathers and she point you know, she pointed like that and I was like, Is my dad here? Like I'm looking back. Y'all the imposter syndrome is real, right? Because you know, oftentimes like in Father's Day, I'm oftentimes like, all right, like I know there's good dads out there and you know, and I'm always thinking about like my father, but I never think about like this is a day that's celebrating me. Like I'm a dad and I have I'm, you know, I have a dad, I have twenty year old children. And I was like, I've been dad for that long and I'm still like wondering, like when we talk about fathers days, like they're not talking about me, they're talking about like fathers, dads. You know, but so it is it is a real it is a real thing and you know, and even as I think about today, I know that something or uh, day like today brings about a lot of different emotions, you know, for a lot of us, you know, for some of us that have lost our dads. My dad passed in 2008 and, and haven't, you know, and so, and for those that are um, expecting dads, that are expecting children that are coming and, this, and knows what it's like to be celebrated. I, one um, father says, like, I, I don't know, it's weird, his whole father was the first time that he was able to kind of be celebrated as a dad. He just had a child this past year. And so it, just, it brings a lot of emotions, it brings a lot of things that, you know, that we have. And then for those that have had dads, which is pretty much all of us, you know, and the impact that dads have had on our lives in so many different ways. And really, that's really what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this, the impact that dads have had and have on our lives. And, you know, and I want to start off with a couple of stories, three stories, exactly, really stories about my dad to kind of help shape um, where I'm going today. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be ver looking at verses 12 through 17, but when I think about like stories about dad, story about my dad specifically, my dad was Reggie Lewis, he passed away in 2008, but there was three moments that really kind of helped that shape, that were life-altering moments. The first one was I, I was at the age of five, I remember playing in my first football, tackle football game, and I remember scoring four or five touchdowns that game, just having a really great game, you know, coming out, and this little five-year-old, my dad came out to, to, to this little five-year-old, five he says, how do you have a God-given talent? And I just remember those words gave me a sense of purpose, a sense of identity. I remember the rest of my life was like, um, football actually became my God because of that, because, you know, I was like, I wanted to please my my dad. I wanted to be with him. And so that was one of those life-changing moments. The other life-changing moments I remember was around 12, 10 or 10 years old. My dad has been going, he played professional football. And, and I remember one time he was going, to, I, I think he was, you know, he was gone. I don't know the reason why he was gone, but he came back home. And it was late at night and I was the only kid up. And I remember him taking me um, to, he was like, you hungry? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm hungry. And he took me to McDonald's. And I remember getting a 20-piece nuggets with large fries and some sweet and sour sauce. And I, and I you know, but it was more than just the memory. The reason why I can still remember that day, and I still remember that place in New Orleans where my dad took me. I, I, you know, I was just in New Orleans this past week, and oftentimes when I go to New Orleans, I'll go back and I'll drive and I'll see that McDonald's. And, you know, I just remember the 20-piece nugget, remember all those things, but I, more than anything, I remember like time with my dad 
And that was something that encouraged me. It's like, man, I want to be present with my kids in a lot of ways, you know. But I also remember the time when I was actually 35 years old. Um, by this time, my dad had passed away. Um, and, and even though he passed away, I had a memory, but this memory wasn't as fine. It was the first time that I realized that um, I didn't know how to change a flat tire. And I remember the time, it was actually, it wasn't my tire that was flat, but it was um, someone who was living with us at the time. They broke down on the side of the road, we went over there, and, and I remember that being there, and I remember, like, trying to figure out how to change this flat tire, and how to, you know, Caden, put the correct jack, and put it in the right place, and do all those things, and I just remember getting so frustrated and so mad, and it was, at this time, it started getting dark, and, you know, I'm calling and trying to figure things out, but... So what ended up happening is that I saw anger and rage really start building in me. And then at that time, a guy came and he pulled up, you know, on the street. And I remember on the, on the side of the highway, this guy coming off the street or uh, coming out, walking in the car. And I remember having a visceral feeling that if I can't prove that I'm a man by changing this car, I'm going to prove I'm a man right that way because I thought he was coming to do something. And I just remember how much that infected me and that, you know, and all of my anger and my frustration went to my dad. And I remember these three on life altering the moments of this desire of desire to be present with my dad, the desire of the things that he didn't teach me, the desire, you know, that he had that gave me life and empowered me in so many different ways and so many different things. And this is the conclusion that I came up with and that I, that I recognize now looking back on my dad and looking back on this dad's as a, as a whole, and especially as we think about God as our father. And here's, and here's the thing. How we view God as Father determines our ability to walk with love. How we view our God as Father determines our ability to walk with love. You see, in said it different ways that if we understand God as Father, that gives us a better ability to walk in love. You see, but here's the problem. Here's the problem, because we're going to be talking about the Father's love. If you've been with us, we've been talking about um, Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, we talked about being in him. And in the beginning of the very first, it talks about how God the Father chooses us and he adopts us, right? That he, he adopts us as his children. We didn't get a chance to really unpack exactly all of what he does, but he talks about how he lavishes as adopted sons and daughters. He lavishes his love upon us, right? You know, and even though we can read the book of Ephesians, we can go verse by verse and study it, Paul recognizes that we don't get it, we don't understand how much the Father truly loves us, primarily because of our view and our distrust that we have with the Father. And here's the problem, is that oftentimes our view of the Father is tainted by our view of our earthly Father. And it's so much of how we see our earthly father impacts how we view our heavenly father. And this is the reason why Paul recognizes is that if we truly can understand God as father, that will give us a better ability to actually walk in his love. You see, because oftentimes, no matter where you have or the other, a great father, a bad father, an absent father, you know, we see the impact is real. We can go through all the stats about um, all the different 
trauma responses that we have, the dad wounds that we have growing up. But you know, it results in a lot of ways is that the anger and the pain in which we live oftentimes. We also, and we deal with the, that anger, that trauma, and that pain in a lot of different ways. We deal with it, whether it be bottling up our feelings, right? We, or we, we prove that we're gonna be better or we're going to prove that we're going to be just like because whether that ex that experience shapes ultimately how we we live. But, there, but regardless of it, it gives us this inner sense, oftentimes, of lostness and incompleteness. And some of us to this day are still waiting to hear the same words that God the Father said to Jesus when He said, "Well done, my good and faithful servant, uh, my good and faithful." Right. Well done, right? There's people who go their whole life without hearing those words. And there's people who spend their whole life desiring to hear their, those words from, a, from their dad. So Paul recognizes this. He recognizes the pain of this. And it's not just the Bible, even sociologists recognize the pain of these things. One sociologist says it this way, is that if we want to solve the problems of this country, we have to solve the problem in the city. And if we want to solve the problem in the city, we got to solve the problem of the home in the city. And if we're going to solve the problem of the home in the city, we got to solve the problem of the absence of the man in the home. And basically what, what he's ultimately saying is that there's an epidemic that, um, that we see not too long ago in the 40s or in the 50s that it was only 11% of homes was raised without dad in the home. Now that number is almost doubled, it has doubled. That we are up to, for, as a society, that only 25% has a dad in the home, has um, any, I'm sorry, has biological dad in the home. Back that up. 25%, let me get back to my notes, 25 25% of homes don't have dad in the home, right? Right, don't have any dad, where 40% doesn't have biological dad in the home. And that number is astonishing for the African-American community where that number jumps to 70 to 80% that are lacking dad in the home. And so we talk about it, and we can look at all the statistics, just like there's all types of statistics about if the ability to read by the third grade, there's all types of st statistics that talks about the absence of dad in the home. But the question becomes, what do we do? How do we do? How do we address the tension that we have as dad? It was great seeing, being there last night, yesterday morning with all the men that were um, there. And just, it was a, such an encouraging time, a good chance to see it was about 40 plus men that gathered around who was just making a commitment to serve one another, a commitment to love God, a commitment to spur, literally spur one another. We had a chance to hear some vulnerability. We got a chance to like really encourage one another. And you know, in India, I was just thinking about like just the future, regardless of whether they're dads or not dads, whether they're um, earthly fathers or spiritual fathers, that God has called each and every one of us. And I was just, as I was thinking about today's message, thinking about that as it's like, this is the reason why it is important for us to not for sake the gathering but to continue to spur one another on to love and the good deeds in that and so the question that oftentimes that we recognize is that is this is that Paul recognized that to know God as father is not just a theological endeavor 
That is not just something that we have to talk about from a theological term, but when we know God as Father or embrace Him as Father, what we get a chance to do as children of God, we get a chance to do three things. We get a chance to stop striving. We get a chance to start crying out to God and begin to testify about our identity in Christ. Romans chapter 8 is, is our text, 8, 12 through 17. Let's pray and let's jump in to the text. Father, we're thankful for this time. I thank you, thankful for the fathers here. We're thankful that we get a chance to celebrate. We're thankful, Lord, for listen, who you have made us, Lord. And as we all come in different places and different forms, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in your love today. And so, Father, help us to be first sons so that we can be better fathers. Father, we love you, we bless you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, 12 through 17. This is Paul, after coming off, talking about we are saved by grace, that it's a gift of God. But this is right after chapter 7 when Paul is wrestling with his own identity crisis, his own imposter syndrome, where he's talking about the very things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing all the more. And the very things I find myself, the things I want to do, I can't do. And it's just like, so he comes to the conclusion, says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will save me? And then he comes and he comes with the conclusion in Romans chapter 8 and 1. He says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of Christ that will save us. He then goes and talks about how, through the gospel, how it frees us from the grips of the law. You see, what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is that up until this point, he's talking about some of the challenges of faithfully teaching the gospel to God's people, to God's children. And that in there, that there becomes kind of like ditches to the left and ditches to the right that ends up getting us off the narrow path of the gospel. And so then he comes in in verse 12, and he says, basically, so then, and he gives us kind of a conclusion of what's going on and what he's been preaching. He says, brothers and sisters, those who identify that God is their father, Jesus is our elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, those who identify as being in Christ, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Why? Because if you are living according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if you live by the Spirit, put, the death, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children are so heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that, why? So that we may 
also be glorified with him. There's three things that I wanted to encourage us today, um, you know, when it comes to how we view God as father, as it relates to what, and encourage us to walk in his love. And those three things, as I've already said it before, is that we need to stop striving, we need to start crying, and then we need to begin identifying. Stop striving, start crying, and begin identifying. Right here in this text, we see Romans chapter 8, 12, it says, it talks about brothers and sisters. We are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He started off with this first kind of summary statement allowing us all to recognize and know that there is no obligation. For those that are in Christ, there is no obligation to live according to our flesh, according to our works, according to our deeds. But there's no obligation that we have. Because if you are living according to the flesh, he says very simple, you will die. You will die. Basically, what he is ultimately saying is that he's starting off foundationally with the gospel. And the foundational understanding of the gospel is that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That we have all sinned and that there is no, there's, this gap is so big that there's nothing that we can do to bridge that gap. Right? None of our good deeds, none of our works, none of our efforts that we can do. And so this is the reason why in Romans chapter 3 earlier, Paul says, I've already made this point. He says, for there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none that pleases after God. There is actually none that seeks God. And he basically says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard of his glory. Because God's standard is perfection. He tells us, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so Paul goes on and says, it's not only are we not perfect, we are wretched, we are crooked, we are messed up. Then he says, for there is none righteous, no, not one, there's none even who seeks after God. Right? And so he's, he's establishing this, and then after establishing this, he then comes out in Romans chapter 3, 21, he says, apart from the law apart from the law. So this is an invitation to us to say, stop, start, stop striving to try to merit God's favor in the same way that oftentimes we try to merit our dad's favor through our law, through our accomplishments. Because he's saying that when it comes to God, that all of our works are like filthy rags. So he tells us to stop striving. You see, if throughout that book, throughout the book, he goes on and he begins to talk and begins to faithfully preach the gospel, that oftentimes people have talked about the book of Romans as being kind of the, a magnum opus of the gospel. And that is the place where we get to understand the reconciling work of God, how God has reconciled man to himself in spite of our sin. That, God, that the book of Romans is not answering the question, how can God sin you know, good people to heaven or to hell. That's not the question. The real question that he's asking is how can the holy God allow wicked people like us into his presence? And so he goes and he lays this foundation. And so now Paul saying, listen, let me break this down and give an overall summary. He says, Brothers and sisters, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who recognize God as Father, you are not obligated to the flesh 
are to live according to the flesh. Because if you do, if you try to live according to the flesh, if you try to gain God's favor according to the flesh, you will die. Right? And so throughout this book, he basically begins to unpack that. What does that mean? And so when you begin to faithfully preach the gospel, Jesus talks about the gospel as a narrow road. Right? And on any narrow road, there's ditches to the left and there's also ditches to the right. You know, I'm a city guy. I don't, I'm not a big bowler. Um, but, you know, you guys understand, like, the gutter ball. Who's bowling? Who's, who has more time spending, like, in the gutters when they actually do hitting pins? Right? You know, like, who's the goal is, like, to get 100, like, 50, 60, like, in bowling? But... But in that is it's like, you know, so they they put up bumper rails, right? So that if you go too far to the left, it bumps, and then kind of is, but if you go too far to the right, it bumps, and it comes back in. And so ultimately what Paul is saying is that when someone is faithfully preaching the gospel, there are gutters on both sides. These gutters on one side is what we call legalism. But the gutter on the other side is what we call antinomianism. Right, or licentiousness, right? And so on one side is legalism and on the other side is licentiousness, right? And so we see this on this side. And so what is legalism? Legalism is simply, it's, it's, it's sort of what we would say, it's law without grace. It's law without grace. It's, it's, our, it's when we view God as Father or as our Heavenly Father, but we don't see him as our Abba Father. We'll talk about that. That when we look at God, we see God as this dominant dictator, as someone who is, that we're trying to earn favor, trying to get, but he's kind of so dominant. And it leads us to saying things like, he loves me, he loves me not. And that is our Christianity. That's what legalism does. It's like, when I'm doing good, God, he loves me. When I'm doing bad, he loves me not. When I'm doing good, he loves me. But when I'm doing bad, he loves me not. But the problem is, is that when we begin to embrace how wicked we really are, we end up seeing how bad we really are. And so we then say, God, he doesn't love me. And if he doesn't love me, I might as well. He's not going to look out for me. And if he's not going to look out for me, i got to look out for myself. Amen. Right? And we begin to go down this path and this road because we've been trying to earn our way to merit it. And so on one side, Paul is talking about, he's like, let me just kind of bring that up. Like, like, your works will never merit God's love. It will never merit, no matter how hard you try. Right? When you recognize God as Father, but see, but on the other side, look, on the other side of this, we see the what we call antinomianism. And antinomian, antinomianism is is basically a fancy word, it's antinomianism, it's without law. Without law. Right? So it's grace without law. It's when we view God as Abba, Father, but not Heavenly Father. Right? And so instead of viewing God as a dominant dictator, we view God as a passive pusher. You know, God is my homie type thing. You know, and in that, what we end up doing is that instead of saying he loves me, he loves me not, we go with that nobody's perfect and God understands mindset. And we basically say we're going to live our best life now. 
in God and sense. And so what Antinomians basically said is it's like, hey, if it's all by grace, why don't we just let sin abound? And so when Paul, as he was going through the book of Romans, he said, listen, apart from the law in Romans chapter 3, but then in Romans chapter 5, when it basically says, well, if it's all about grace, why don't we just let sin all the more? He said, no, may it never be. May it never be. You see, because he's, when he faithfully preached the gospel, Paul recognizes is that there are gutters on both sides. And see, and in that, he's going to give us the solution and the answer to why that is not the case. Right? Because some people thought Paul was preaching a graceless gospel, but some others thought that Paul was preaching a gospel of law. Right? And so, but what he says, and what he says, like, let me break it down real clear to you. Right? In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus answers this question. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the privacy. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. For truly I tell you, when heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest letter or one stroke or stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And so basically it says that apart from the law, every man, woman, and child will be held to the standard of meeting with their maker. Of meeting with their maker. And so Basically, Paul kind of sets the scene and he says that if you are falling, whether you're falling to the left or whether you're falling to the right, he says these are all both gutters, both ditches of the gospel, of preaching a faithful gospel, that we can go too far to the left or we can go too far to the right. And so, and so in here, he basically says, and part of the reason why we can go one side or the other is because of our understanding of who God is. And we have a misproper understanding of who God is. In verse 14, he goes on, he says, here's the reason why. Whatever you see, we talk about words like therefore or but or whatever. Another key word when you look into the scriptures are words like for. Basically, because when you see words like for, he's giving us a reason. You can oftentimes insert it in like with the word because or why what was said previously is kind of being unpacked right here. And so in verse 14, he says, because or for, all those led by God's spirit are God's son. He lets it off, but he gives basically another summary statement. He says the reason why your love is not based upon what you do and don't do for him is because simply you are a king's kid. Your identity is in Christ. Right? And it's in the same way, no matter how much our kids get on our nerves, they're still our children. And so in, and it's in that that we recognize that our sin doesn't make them any less children, our children. And so Paul is basically saying that we have to differentiate the difference between relationship and fellowship. You see, when it comes down to relationship, we recognize that relationship, that you can't be unborn, that if you are born again, you were truly born of Christ, then you can't be unborn of him. That once saved, always saved. You know, you put your confidence in him because it wasn't about your confidence in trying to marry. It was about his confidence. But so the problem is that, again, I said often that we get saved by grace, but we try to keep it with the law. 
Like, I understand that if I die and go die and stand before God, and I would say, Jesus died for my sins, that, you know, I get that, but I try to please him by my merit, by what I do, right? But then what, the, what this other thing, what he says is like, listen, let me just break this down, that you are mine. For those who are led by this God's spirit are God's sons. They are God's daughters. We are children of God. We are king's kids. And he gives another one. For, he goes, let me explain further to you. Because you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What is he saying right now? God did not give you a spirit of slavery, meaning that going back to like all the other religions with this, he loves me, he loves me not. That the best that we have is hopefully we lived a good enough life to please him. The Bible tells us that we can be 100% certain that we're going to heaven, that we are in the Father's love. First John chapter 5 tells us, he says that, I wrote these things to you so that you may know for certain, right? That, so we recognize that we can know for certain that we are God's children. And he says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. God does not hold heaven as a carrot for his children. Mm. You ain't going to heaven. All right, I got you. Mm. Don't like that. And oftentimes, that's the thing that we do, because oftentimes, that's what we get from our parents, right? Or when we thought growing up that we were getting from our parents, is that when we did good, that we can go out, we can ask for, like, ice cream and do whatever we kind of want. But when we're doing bad, don't ask for certain things, right? And you just knew it. You would kind of go in and kind of, like, test the water. Ice cream time, right? <laughs> but then sometimes you go, not today. Right? Because that's, that's how we learn how to kind of deal with love. Right? And that's how we project that same love on everybody. It's kind of like this game, you know, it's like double dutch and you're trying to like find the right time to jump in. And that's really what's going on and what's happening. And that's how we experience God's love. And he says, listen, Christ did not die to give you a spirit of going back to that mindset. This he loves me, he loves me not mentality. That God is not trying to motivate us to live right by our guilt. He's not trying to motivate us by our toxic shame. He's not trying to motivate us by kind of trying to hold care of heaven as a nugget. He motivates us as it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, God, like I am controlled by the love of God. It's the love of God that propels us. I don't do these things because I want to earn God's favor. I do these things because I have God's favor. And he says that I do not, like, you are God's son. You are God's daughter. That when we recognize it, that when we recognize that we see God as our father, in the holistic sense of what we know a father is, ought to be, that we do not fall back into a spirit of slavery. When we're left up to just our good deeds and how well we performed for that day. But instead, that's what he says. He did not give us 
a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. He says, but instead, he gives us an alternative. And this is what separates Christianity from any other religion. Every, every other religion hopes that at the end that their God will be merciful at the end. Christianity says you're never going to merit the salvation. You're never going to merit my favor. And the only way you are going to get it is that if you trust in my son Jesus. And so then we talked about, all right, I trust in Jesus, so then how do we live? He says, here's the alternative. In Colossians chapter 2, 6, it says, in the same way you have received Christ, therefore walk in him. God doesn't change it up. How do we receive Christ? By grace, through faith, that it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. So how do we walk with God? It's by grace, through faith, that it's a gift of God, not of ourselves, not of works. Right? And we talked about because we are his workmanship, living in Christ. And he says, so instead, here's the new way. You receive the spirit of adoption. You are now, this is what the whole series we've been talking about. We are now in him. You've been adopted as sons and daughters in him. And you know what our response is? Cry out. Cry out. And what do we cry? We cry to the one who knows what to do with our pain. We cry out to Abba, Father. You see, so in here, what we see is that when we start crying out to God as Abba, Father, we start embracing a gospel-centered understanding of it. You see, in the gospel-centered understanding that we embrace both the law and grace, Paul says it like this. He says, for though I am without, for the, when I preach to those without law, I come to them without law, even though I have the law of Christ. But to those without the law, uh, with those with the law, I come to one that has been freed with God. Right? So Paul says that I become all things all men, understanding that he has a healthy understanding of the gospel, and that the gospel brings about both a standard, but also intimacy. And so in these words when he says we cry out, I love it in there because when we talk about a cry out, that that first thing is that, I mean, that, that's not words that we would like necessarily use. Like cry out. Like that would like cry out because it's, it's, but, but it's a term that it brings about desperation. It's a term that brings us back to our childlike faith. Like who, who, are, who is the predominantly age group that is known to cry? Babies. They're the predominant group. And whenever babies have needs, and teenagers. That's another story. Just kidding, I love you. Um, uh, so babies are crying. And whenever a baby has need, what do they do? They cry. They cry. Whenever a baby has needs. And guess what? Every time a baby cries out, what happens? Mom and dad shows up. Present. Present. Right? And so this is what we see is that he's telling us when we recognize, stop, start, stop striving instead of, instead, here's the new way, start crying. How many of us like that way? None of us. Amen. I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't, but most of us, we don't like that. Who wants to be the person to cry, baby? Right? Right? But 
that's our, that's our flesh. That's our flesh. I don't want to be saved by grace. I want to say, God, like, hey, man, you are better than the rest of them. You are better than the rest. And he was just like, man, those people who lay their confidence in there, you will surely die. But those people, when they come to that same throat in the road, the only way you will live is if you go back to your baby, your childlike state and you start crying out. And what is our cry? We cry to the one we believe that can help us. We cry out, Abba, Father. What does that mean? There's two words that are used the same. One is transliterated, which basically means that it was in the original Hebrew, but they just kind of wrote it out in the Greek in the same way it's stated in the Hebrew. And basically, it's kind of a, a word that it talks about is like, dada. Like, it's, it's like, dada. Like, on one, it's like, dada. And then the other one is the Greek word, patar. Basically, it's, it's translated, which means the word father. So on one, it's like those who cry out, Daddy, Father. Right? But there is a both, we see in that, there's both this capacity that we see is that he is both heavenly, that there is a standard, that he's holy, that he's set apart, that he's not this toothless person, but he, he will come back, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that God will get justice, right? So on one end, he recognizes, God, you are heavenly, but on the other end, we also recognize, that God, you are also daddy, that in here we see this, this, both this capacity to love for intimacy, right? But on the other side, for standard. And in that, we see him as a pursuant provider. Because when we do that, we can come and we can say with faith that we are both beautiful and broken. We are both broken and beloved. But even when, even when I'm at my worst, I'm still loved. And that's what it talks about, agape love. You see, and this is what Paul is saying. He's like, those who are struggling with walking in his love has a problem with viewing God as their father and the full sense of what it is. And, pro and the problem that we have is that our, our perception of our earthly father shades how we really view our heavenly father. And it causes us to either kind of be, I'm going to do my own thing, or kind of this legalistic thing. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller says it this way. He talks about the tradition of religion. Tradition of religion. And religion is about how uh, is our attempts to get, to get God. He says this. He says, I give God a good moral record so that he has to bless me. The gospel says God gives me a good moral record through Christ, so I want to bless him. Religion says if I obey, then God will love and accept me. The gospel says, the gospel says God loves me and accepts me, therefore I obey. 
I love one of the most famous Tim Keller quotes that he said. He says, the gospel says that you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe, yet you are also more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. And that's the wrestle that we have, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe, but we are also more loved, loved and accepted than we ever dared to dream or dared to hope. See, the reality is this, is that until we truly understand God as our Father, we won't truly begin to embrace the, complex, the totality of our healing and our wholeness of our souls. That we recognize that what it means to truly be chosen by God, the Father, to truly be adopted as his sons, that he gives us what you and I look for. We are looking for an agape love, a love that is unmerited, that's, that is not earned or deserved. It gives us a sense of security that we have, right? But it's in there that we get a chance to respond with Abba, Father, that that capacity as Abba for intimacy and we see that he is both heavenly, that authority, and that discipline. You see, one of the things that we understand is that when we begin to stop striving, when we start crying, right, that's when we, we, we end. We basically say we begin to start to identify. We start identifying. You see, because God meets us at our needs. The final couple of verses says this. He says, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Again, just read over Romans chapter 8, because if you read over the first half of Romans chapter 8 and then you go to the later half of Romans chapter 8, what Paul is trying to do is get you to get and get you to understand that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And so over and over, after he just talked about how wretched he was in chapter 7, he goes in and he talks about there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He doesn't leave it, leave it as a theological statement. He goes into some of the most intimate of relationship, of the one that we want to get most um, acknowledgement from, that of a father. And he says, instead of trying to look, that, look at that or look for that in our heavenly, our earthly father, that God, our heavenly father, will give us that. That he will give us that. And so he keeps reminding them that you are sons, you are daughters of the king. So in verse 16 says, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are also heirs. And if we are heirs of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. So all the riches that were given to Christ as being the most preeminent son, we also as sons and daughters also receive that because we are in him. We are in Christ. It says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. You see, here's the problem that Instead of being known as king's kids and God's children, we want to be known by everything else. We want to be known by the type of worship. We want to be known by the type of theology we hold to. We want to be known to how good we are, right? And so when we talk about this, instead of what the Bible says to be known by our love, and what does it say? The only way we can be known by our love is that we first receive the love of God, right? I love what my daughter said on the video, 
um, you know, because it is something that I believe is so true. Do you recognize that the moon does not produce any light? The moon does not produce any light, but it's known as the lesser light. Why? It's only when we recognize that it's when the moon aligns its properly with the sun is when the moon is a reflection of the light of the sun. And so this is why we get a dim reflection of God. And so what we recognize is that in, on this side of heaven, the best we're going to ever get is a dim reflection of God's love. But that doesn't give us a reason to abdicate our responsibilities. Hebrews chapter 12 says, our fathers disciplined us the best that they knew how. The best that they knew how. But our heavenly father, he replaces it. He says, it's not up to him. You see, our earthly fathers, the best that they have were a dim reflection. And some of us have some really good dads. But the best you're going to get is a dim reflection. But you see, and that shouldn't lead us to frustration or depression. But what it ought to lead us to is that if, like for, like if this is a dim reflection of what God's love, that my desire and my hope, I can't wait till the perfect comes. And this is our heart because we are his. We are a part of God's family. And when we recognize that we're a part of God's family, we stop striving. We start crying. And finally, we begin identifying. Because when we identify as God's children, we begin to declare what was true in the promises of God. We stop living as anxious, right? What does Matthew chapter 6 says? He says, stop worrying about all of these things. Stop worrying about your life. Stop worrying about all the things that keep us up, your food and the body and your clothing. Stop worrying. He says, stop worrying about what you're going to eat. Right? He says, the birds of the sky, they reap, they don't sow it all. But the heavenly fathers know that you're even more, you're worth more than them. He says, consider them. He says, stop worrying about your lifespan. Stop worrying what you're going to do. Stop worrying about what you're going to wear. Stop worrying. When he goes in it through there, if you just look at chapter 6, 25, all the way through the end of 34, the whole thing is a stop worrying. And he uses, you know what he says? Your heavenly father got you. He has you. Stop worrying and start trusting. Identify that you, that we are king's kids. And he says, and let me give you the alternative. This instead, but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be, will be added to you. I love this because here's the truth, and here's the reality, that we all have a place where we desire to belong and matter. That's just a need that we have. And oftentimes that void comes in a lot of different ways. But our view of God as Father will determine how healthy we are to live in his love. And so we have to come back. And I pray that this Father's Day that we would be reminded to stop striving because you are in Christ. Start crying and tell the truth about what's going on inside and begin testifying or identifying that we are God's children. Saints, God is our Father. 
Jesus is our elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not just a theological statement, but that is a fact. And that is, uh, and that is the very essence of how we are to live out our salvation. So let's go before the Lord and ask him. Father, we're thankful. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.